Hello and welcome to the Tebby podcast from The Evidence-Based Investor. I'm Robin Powell and this podcast is brought to you by Regis Media, a niche provider of educational and marketing content for financial advice and planning firms. On this episode, we're discussing lessons the financial markets taught us in 2021. My Tebby colleague Larry Swedrow comes up with a list of lessons every year. Inevitably, some of the lessons have featured in previous lists, and yet, year after year, investors fail to learn them. They keep making the same mistakes. There are 10 lessons on this year's list, and Larry has been talking me through them one by one. Enjoy the interview. So, Larry, thank you very much for joining me again. Um, this list, your investment lessons the market taught us, um, it's become a bit of a, a an annual thing for you, hasn't it? An, an annual tradition. Yeah, I've been doing it, I think, for about 15 years now because I learned that the market does provide investors with opportunities to learn lessons. And hopefully you pay attention and what differentiate smart people from fools is smart people still make mistakes, but they learn from their mistakes and they don't repeat them, repeating the same behavior over and over again and expecting uh, a different outcome is unfortunately, uh, you know, what Einstein called the definition of insanity. <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, let, let's let's rattle through these. There are there are 10 of them. Um, see the first on your list, valuations cannot be used to time markets. So explain that. Yeah, what we often hear from stock market gurus uh, is prices are exceptionally high, the, and they generally mean P.E. ratios much higher than historical averages, and therefore you want to get out of the market. A uh, great example is a highly regarded uh, investor, Jeremy Grantham, who's the chief investment officer of GMO. He's actually been predicting a crash of 60 to 70 percent as far back as 2013 because the Schiller Cape 10 or the cyclically adjusted P ratio was well above its average. And obviously he's been wrong for eight years and he keeps singing the same tune. He actually said uh, in 2021 that the market would see a crash and when the decline comes, it will be perhaps bigger and better than anything in history. Now, he may have made that statement because we started the year with the Cape 10 at 34, which is twice the historical average. It ended the year even higher. Today, we're right around 40. But what Grantham is missing uh, is that the evidence shows you cannot use it to time markets. The P.E. ratio has virtually no predictive value for the next year or maybe even two or three years. It does have value longer term at 10 year horizons. But even there, Robin, investors have to learn all it means is the following. A high P.E. ratio predicts the likelihood of lower returns. So mm -hmm. the way we think about it is a PE of say 40, we invert that and get an earnings yield. That would then predict 
a 2.5% real return to the market. But you have to understand that there's still a, a very large dispersion of outcomes. It, history shows it could beat that by at least 4% or more over the next 10 years or underperform it by at least 4% over the next 10 years because people's perceptions of risk change and market sentiments changes. So you have to be prepared for a wide potential dispersion of outcomes. You cannot use high valuations to predict bear markets and try to jump in and out. And that's what the evidence shows very clearly. People who have tried have generally been unsuccessful, even before taxes. And of course, it's not just Jeremy uh, Grantham, Larry, is it, who's been calling the top of the market for a long, long time. Goodness me, if if you'd taken his advice in, in 2013, uh, you, you would be um, you, you'd be feeling very, very, very sorry for yourself. Um, yeah, Jonathan uh, Hussman is another well-known name who's been singing from the same hymnal. And, and the worrying thing, Larry, is is sooner or later these people are going to be right. And and what we have to make sure is that you know we, we remind people that they have been calling it wrong all these years. I mean, if if you if you call the top of the market long enough. Uh, and often enough, you know, one day you're going to be right. Yeah, uh, Peter Lynch, uh, I think, was the one who said more money has been lost anticipating bear markets than ever lost in bear markets. Mm -hmm. Well, lesson two, Larry, um, is a familiar one to uh, readers of the evidence-based investor and, of course, all your books. Active management is a loser's game. Yeah, so what we mean is by that, it doesn't mean, of course, the people who are playing it are losers. It's the game that's a, loser, <laughs> a loser's game, yeah. which also doesn't mean it's not possible to win. It's just mm. that the odds of doing so are so poor that you it's not simply not prudent to try unless you attach a lot of entertainment value to it. It's just like going to, say, the uh, blackjack tables or the roulette mm. wheel or the slot machines, you can get rich even doing them, but not many people can, uh, you know, succeed. So you're better off not playing. And mm. 2021 was just another year that demonstrates this point. The S&P was up 28% and it outperformed the vast majority, 76% of all uh, funds in its Morningstar category. And that's even before taxes and small stocks where you hear this argument, uh, small cap stocks are less efficient. We had very similar results. But here's the thing. You always get every year, Robin. I literally mm. have never heard a Wall Street guru say this is the year you should be a passive mm. investor. The yeah, index exactly. It's I, every I single year. Literally, <laughs> this will be yeah. the year of active management. Then you hear one excuse after the other. Recently, I heard, well, correlations, you know, are a problem. So active did poorly. Well, mm. that's easily exposed as a lie because the, while the market was up 29% roughly, uh, the 10 best returning stocks returned at least 118 and the worst performing stocks, 10 stocks lost at least 22 which means all you had to do was overweight those top 10 
underweight, the worst performer, those dogs, and you would have easily outperformed. And yet mm. 24%, and that was it, did manage mm. to beat the index. Finally, what we know is that percentage is pretty typical for one year, but the longer the horizon you look at, the worse the data gets. So mm. Spiva shows roughly that 90% plus in almost every asset class of active managers lose at the 10-year horizon. I don't know, Larry, it might just be me, uh, but I think I've seen slightly fewer articles along the lines of this is the year for active management. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they finally learned their lesson. Uh, um, I'm going to disagree. <laughs> In the last few days, I've been watching Bloomberg News and every one of the analysts who came on, whether yeah. it was from Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, Literally, the words that I'm at, you, this is the year you're going to have to be an active investor. <laughs> right. Okay. Moving on. Lesson three. Don't make the mistake of recency. Last year's winners are just as likely to be this year's dogs. Yeah, this is the very typical uh, era, probably one of the worst and most common one by investors. They lack Warren Buffett's discipline. Uh, mm. He's a value investor. He stays the course. Value has underperformed for long periods of time, four or five years uh, in the late 90s. And then more recently, in, you know, from 2017 through 2020. And he doesn't care because he has a belief and a disciplined approach. Most mm. investors, unfortunately, think that let alone one year, but three years is like an infinite amount of time to wait uh, mm -hmm. to get their returns. And so they jump from one to the other. The best example of that most recently is Kathy Wood's ARC Fund. Mm -hmm. It turned in a spectacular performance in 2020. It was up like 150% or so. Cash came piling in, billions of dollars came flooding in. Uh, and by uh, the fund, which just a few years ago, it had only 200 million, was sitting at 28 billion by the end of February. And the mm. fund proceeded to lose about 37% from its high in mid-February to the end of the year, was down almost, I think, another 10% or something like that, the start this year. And, you know, investors get slaughtered. And so mm. what we to show here in uh, my uh, lessons learned piece is we look at uh, 11 major asset classes, large, small value and growth in the US plus real estate and commodities and large, small value and growth and emerging markets uh, for the international side. And we see that the top performing asset class in 2020, which was US small cap stocks, dropped to number six, uh, mm. and the worst performer, which was REITs in 2020, became the single best performer, returning 46% in 2021. So if you're chasing performance, you're always buying high uh, mm. after great performance, selling low after poor performance, tending to miss those rebounds. And what the data shows quite often is and Peter Lynch actually looked at this himself. He found in a period where his Magellan fund actually did pretty well, the average investor lost money. 
because mm -hmm. they poured money in after a great year. He had a poor year. They pulled the money out and then weren't there when he recovered. Mm. Well, uh, you, you were making exactly the same point the other day about about Kathy Wood that that you know um, when she really was um, producing stellar performance, the, the the assets were relatively modest. But and it was when she'd uh, produced this extraordinary performance. I mean, pretty good in in twenty seventeen and very good, of course, in twenty twenty. Everyone piles in just in time for for mean reversion. Yeah, and now they're scrambling out. Yeah, well, exactly. And and Larry, it, it's it's not just every year this happens. It's every country. I mean, here in the UK, we've got a, a, a an active management firm, Bailey Gifford, who, you know, I have to say, I think are pretty good as as active managers go. Um, they're they're uh, reasonably um, uh, um, cost efficient, if you like. Um, they uh, invest for the long term. They don't over trade, if you like. They had an amazing, particularly their North American fund, had an amazing 2020 and a pretty, well, a pretty dismal 2021. So, again, example there of people getting in at just the wrong time. Lesson four, gold is not an inflation hedge over your environment. Uh, sorry, over your investment horizon. Tell me about that. Yeah, so gold actually is a good inflation hedge if your horizon is, let's say, a century or more. Uh, there's <laughs> an interesting study uh, that showed that an ounce of gold uh, when Jesus walked the earth bought mm. a good suit of clothes for the typical Roman centurion. Uh, and I would say an ounce mm. of gold today buys a nice suit for the typical Wall Street investment banker. Uh, mm -hmm. So you got over 2000 years and zero return, but it mm -hmm. did hedge inflation. Uh, but there are many periods um, where gold has unbelievably underperformed inflation. For example, from its peak at around 1980 to around 2002 or so, uh, gold fell dramatically while inflation was running about 4%. So over that 23 year or so year period, gold lost about 86% of its value in real terms. So I don't know how anyone can claim gold could be an inflation hedge when you lose 85% or so of your value in real terms over a 22 year period. And last year just provided another good example. Inflation spiked to 7% and gold fell close to 4% for the year. So it underperformed inflation by about 11%. That mm. cannot be an inflation hedge. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, and, and what about cryptocurrency? Is that, a, is that an inflation hedge? <laughs> uh, yeah. Cryptocurrency to me is a pure speculation. There is no investment logic behind it. It doesn't mean it can't turn out to be worth a million dollars. If everyone believes it's worth it, then that's what it is. It's no different than, say, a Mona Lisa painting. It's what people mm. are willing to pay for it. But there's no yeah. cash flow. And in my opinion, there's no logic because there are an infinite supply of cryptocurrencies. Uh, and anything that has an infinite supply should have a price that asymptotically approaches zero. Uh, that's my logic. So I don't think it's an investment. It's a pure speculation. 
And I'm perfectly willing to admit it could turn out to be a very good one. But it certainly is an inflation hedge. You can't drop 40%, which it has done over the last few months when inflation is spiking and call it an inflation hedge. It's just mm. a speculation, nothing more. Mm. Lesson five, the investment world isn't flat and the diversification of risky assets is as important as ever. Yeah, so here we had Thomas Friedman's famous book that the world was flat and interconnected in much better ways. And therefore, you know, we'd see very similar returns uh, around the globe as global trade increased and we became more of a one world. And so people said you don't need international diversification. You don't have to worry about those kinds of issues because everything mm -hmm. should have similar returns. And as we show in um, my table, but uh, with the article posted on your website, that simply has not been the case. Anyone looking at the data can see that there are still unbelievably large differences in returns between the U.S. and international stocks over the last 20 years after Friedman's book came out. For some long periods, international outperforms. In some long periods, the U.S. has outperformed, which has been in the case recently. But in only three of the 21 years that we, I looked at, the difference in returns between the S&P and the EFI index was less than 5%. And there were 14 years when it was at least 8%. Clearly, the world isn't flat. Wide dispersions, uh, dispersion of returns means that there are plenty of opportunities for uh, diversification to be helpful. No, notwithstanding what you were saying earlier, Larry, about um, uh, value uh, uh, um, not necessarily being a uh, predictor or valuations not necessarily being a, a, a way to, to time markets, if you like, um, what about U.S. valuations at the moment? I mean, a lot of people tell me, you know, that the U.S. is overpriced. The rest of the world is fine. What, what, what do you make of that argument? Well, anyone who says the U.S. is overpriced is saying all the sophisticated investors, institutions who do 90% of the trading, therefore mm. setting prices are just a bunch of dummies. That's basically, <laughs> I'm exaggerating the point, but mm. uh, to make the point, uh, but high valuations, all it does not mean in general, I will say, with one exception, mm. if you want to get into I'll I'll, go, I'll do that. Uh but high valuations do not mean overvaluations. When Jeremy Grantham made his forecast then, I wrote a paper for Advisor Perspectives explaining why I thought he was dead wrong. Uh, mm. uh, I, we don't have time to go into all the reasons, but high valuations simply predict low future returns, not mm. a bear market, not that prices are overvalued. It could mm. mean that people have a perception that stocks are just a very good investment with less or low risk and are worthy yeah. of paying higher prices for it. So today, mm -hmm. what we have for the S&P 500 is a Cape 10 of about uh, 40. So that would predict a real uh, return uh, over the next 10 years as the mean of a wide dispersion again. But if two and a half percent, 
Now, that's a real return. The riskless instrument over that period is a 10-year tips, no inflation risk. That has a real yield of less than around, let's just round it to minus 1%. So you got an equity risk premium then of 3.5%. That is certainly low, less than half of the historical average, but it doesn't tell us that the market's overvalued, just that it's highly valued. There is no long-term mean that something should logically revert to. And there are many good reasons why I could argue why PEs today should be much higher than they were over the 150 years roughly of data we have for the Cape 10. International valuations, however, are much lower simply because international stocks and emerging stocks have underperformed for the last decade. Their Cape 10 for the EFI is about half of the US and EFI is even, uh, sorry, emerging markets are even lower. So you have higher expected returns there. But that doesn't mean they're better investments. It means the market believes they're riskier, which means higher expected returns. Okay, that was lesson five. We're halfway through your list of 10. So let's take a short break there. You're listening to me, Robin Powell, interviewing Larry Swedro on the Tebby podcast brought to you by Regis Media. Now, if you're new to investing, there's a book that I've just written with fellow financial blogger Ben Carlson that you really ought to read. It's called Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom, and it's published by Harriman House, mainly written for a UK audience. The book has no hidden sales agenda and is based on peer-reviewed academic evidence. It explains in simple terms how young investors can develop good habits, save a fortune in unnecessary fees, and achieve financial freedom many years earlier than they otherwise would. You can either buy the book direct from the publisher or via Amazon. The book is in paperback and there are Kindle and Audible versions too. That's Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom by Ben Carlson and me, Robin Powell. Okay, welcome back. I'm talking to Larry Swedro about investment lessons the market taught us in 2021. Right, Larry, we've done the first five. Lesson six, hedge funds are not investment vehicles. They are compensation schemes. Wow, you, yeah. you're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're really telling it like it is. Yeah, that's not my line. That's uh, Rex Singfeld, one of the founders of Dimensional Fund Advisors, <laughs> or Gene Farmers. I can't remember uh, which of uh. the two, but it's a great line and reflective mm. of the truth. Hedge funds entered uh, the year coming off the 12th straight year of trailing stocks as measured by the S&P 500. Uh, and now that may not be a fair measure um, in the sense that hedge funds can be long short. They also invest in bonds and other things. So we mm. look at other metrics. Uh, but in 2021, the HFRX Global Hedge Fund Investable Index returned 3.7%, which meant out of all the major equity asset classes, it only outperformed emerging markets. It did, of course, outperform safe bonds, which had negative returns. But if you look at a typical 60-40 portfolio, uh, it probably would have returned 
something like 19%, depending on how much you had in international and U.S., uh, and how much in value, et cetera. Um, I wrote up uh, the piece on your website showing how I calculated it, uh, but investors could create their own calculation. So they would have underperformed a typical 60-40 portfolio, uh, sorry, uh, an all equity portfolio uh, that was diversified globally by about 15%. And if mm. you took the 60-40 portfolio using, say, five-year treasuries, you would have got 11, so you would have underperformed by about 7%. That's really bad uh, in a period where you obviously had great opportunities to add value, as there were some assets like commodities and real estate that performed spectacularly. So then what we did is can look at the longer-term evidence, Robin. Over 20 years... That HFRX Global Hedge Fund Investable Index returned just 2.2%. It underperformed every equity asset class, and it even underperformed by almost 2% five-year treasuries and by almost 5% longer-term treasuries. Mm. This lesson that hedge funds should generally be avoided is one the market teaches every year. Just if I can play devil's advocate, Larry. And, you know, I, I agree with everything you've, you've, you've said about hedge funds. But um, if there were a hedge fund manager sitting in on this conversation, I'm sure they would say, yeah, well, the, the market's been going up since, you know, 20, 2011 or whatever it is. Um, you know, w w one of these days, th th there will be a, you know, very uh, steep correction or a crash. And that's when hedge funds will come into their own. What well, do you say to that? we had that crash in 2020. We That's had true. it in 08, we had it in 2002, and you see the long-term data, and the evidence is investors got slaughtered while the hedge fund sponsors got fat. Mm. Mm. All right, okay. You don't mince <laughs> your words, Larry. Thank you. Um, <laughs> lesson seven, uh, the correlation of returns of stocks and bonds is time-varying. Right, explain that. Yes. So correlations tell you the relationship between returns. And many people think of safe bonds as being negatively correlated uh, with stocks. So when stocks get go down, the bonds will be their safe haven. And that, of course, mm -hmm. does happen when especially when we get flights to quality from crisis like the pandemic um, and uh, also in 2008. However, correlations are time varying and very dependent upon regimes. So what you have to be aware of is that those correlations can change. And we have had, I think, five periods where stocks went down and bonds went down. And, and that could be really bad if you own longer term bonds. Because instead of dampening the volatility of the portfolio, uh, it's still dragging the returns down. Uh, and that's a real risk we saw uh, coming up now. 2021, stocks gave you great returns, so a 60-40 portfolio did, did well. Uh, but it showed that that relationship is can be time varying. We also have periods where stocks go up and bonds go up. 
We saw that for most of the last decade uh, because lower bond yields, higher prices support higher equity valuations. But now the lesson really should be taken. We can see both stocks and bonds go down as we did in the 70s. If bonds are going down, not because of real economic growth going up, driving interest rates up from mm. a demand side, but because of inflation, we get that inflation risk, bonds get hit, stocks could get hit as the Fed tightens, and now you get both of them underperforming at the same time. Investors have to be aware that that correlation is time varying, and they need to understand what risks they are facing and how that can affect their portfolio and, and take that into account as they design their portfolio. Okay, lesson eight. Don't let your political views influence your investment decisions. And of course, you know, the, the, the election, of course, was the end, end of 2020 in, in the US, but, but this was Biden's first year, 2021. Uh, in in office, so uh, explain that 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 rule and and why the event market um, uh, events of last year bore that lesson out. Yeah, so one of my most important roles as our chief research officer at Buckingham Wealth Partners is helping prevent investors from committing what I refer to as portfolio suicide, which is panic selling resulting from fear, whatever the source, and. Sometimes it's a crisis like COVID uh, or uh, oil embargo or a war, or sometimes it's a crisis of confidence in the political situation. What the academic research is very clear is that when your party that you favor is in power, you tend to be more confident if a problem in the economy or markets arises that party mm -hmm. will figure it out, how to address it, turn it around quickly. And you tend, therefore, uh, to not trade, have confidence. You don't panic and sell. And when the party you favor is out of power, the reverse is true. You don't have confidence they'll resolve the problem. And now you start to panic, trade actively. And we know that the more people trade, the worse their results. So the best example is this. Uh, in 2000, George Bush is president. We get 911 in the bear market. Republican investors earn higher returns than the Democrats simply because their political views enable them to have more confidence that it would be resolved successfully, whatever steps the government would take to resolve the problem. Democrats did worse. And every call literally that I got from clients worrying about the markets were from Democrats. And that's like 98%. Now it's just mm. anecdotal. I'm just one advisor. But mm. when Obama became president, we had the great financial crisis. The same thing happened in reverse. I got almost no calls from Democrats worried <laughs> that this thing couldn't be turned around. They were yeah. all from Republicans. And now they were the ones who suffered. We had bunch of people I couldn't talk off the ledge and they sold in a panic and it's very difficult to get back in because it never looks safe. And again, in 2020, uh, when Trump lost, the Republicans now had to face their demons. It's a disaster. We got COVID and Biden's president 
And of course, mm. the stock market soared and many investors who panicked and sold, of course, missed out on great returns. The lesson is simple. Whatever you know about the market, it's already in prices. Uh, and you just, if you, you, it's best simply to avoid letting mm. your political biases impact your decisions. Warren Buffett certainly doesn't let his political views impact his mm. investment decisions, uh, and you absolutely. shouldn't either. Mm. You know, I, I, I think in a sense that that lesson is, is possibly more relevant to the U.S. than it is here. That there is a sense, too, that, you know, the stock market and business and the economy and so on generally, and I'm not making a political point here at all, um, that, that those things tend to do better under under the conservatives, and and I, I think there's the there's the same feeling in in, in America that that um, uh, the, the the economy and, and the markets do better uh, under the Republicans. But um, I remember Tim Edwards from S and P Dow Jones uh, telling me that actually, if you look at the data, stock markets have narrowly, and I think it's just very narrowly done better under the Democrats than, than yeah. under the... I would attach any significance to that mm. data. So as a good example, we had the financial crisis in 08, which turned around in 09. I wouldn't blame that financial mm. crisis uh, on George Bush. Uh, uh, it was caused by other problems. Uh, yeah. And Obama got the benefit of great stock returns, you know, which he had really nothing to do with. I don't think it would have recovered whether we had Democrats or Republicans. So a matter of timing, if you will, we would yeah. have had a great depression, whether Herbert Hoover was president or, you know, Roosevelt was Roosevelt, president. Yeah. Roosevelt exactly. benefited from the ultimate recovery but it would have happened whether he was president likely or not. Mm, mm, uh, mm. So I, I just think there's just, uh, if, even if there was a relationship, uh, there's no causation there. So I wouldn't use it as a predictor. Larry, my fault, we're, we're digressing. So on to lesson nine, diversification is always working. Sometimes you like the results and sometimes you don't. That's very well put. Yeah, so what we mean is we diversify across unique sources of risk because we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. And we know there are no gurus out there who can help you time markets effectively, jumping from one asset class to another or U.S. to international. If there was, we'd see active managers persistently outperforming, and we don't have evidence of that. So you mm. diversify because you acknowledge you don't have a clear crystal ball. And once you diversify away, at least for U.S. investors, it would be diversifying away from the index that's reported every day, the S&P 500, then you have to acknowledge you're not going to look at like the market, whether mm. you add more value stocks or small caps or real estate, commodities, emerging markets, international, whatever it might be. But you shouldn't care. Because mm. you bought, if you will, portfolio insurance uh, that would protect you if that one index did poorly, which the S&P has had a great run for the last 10 years, but it's also had some very long periods where it has dramatically underperformed. You would have been better off in other asset classes. Uh, mm. 2000 through 07 or 08 was a great example. 
where international did better, emerging markets did better, value did better. You just have to live with that, what's called tracking error or tracking variance and mm. not pay attention to it. Because if you do, you're going to be subject to that recency bias and you'll end up buying high after good returns and selling low instead mm. of doing what smart investors do, which is to rebalance, which means you sell after high returns, taking some of those chips off the table uh, and you buy what is done poorly when now when their valuations are relatively lower and expected returns are higher. Mm. So, so as a diversified investor, you're always going to be missing out on on something, basically, aren't you? Um, but but what you've got is the insurance that, you know, if 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 the worst happens, you're, you're not going to lose everything. Yeah, you have a much more smooth ride uh, and compound returns matter. Uh, and the object is not to end up with the most amount of money. The object is to give yourself the best chance of achieving your financial goals. And a mm. diversified portfolio clearly gives you a much better chance of doing so, which is why economists have always said diversification is the only free lunch in investing because done properly, it <clears throat> you reduce your risk without uh, reducing your expected returns. And the final lesson, lesson 10, the strategy to sell in May and go away is a myth. Yeah, this one I have to deal with every uh, May when uh, <laughs> CNBC you know, has somebody pointing this out. Uh, yeah. Now, there is some kind of logic, if you will, to people believing why it's true, because mm. stocks have tended in the U.S. to do much better in the November through April period, getting a risk premium of about 6% a year, where they only get less than half of that May through October. But still, they earned about 2.5% a year more from May through October than T-bills. So mm. getting out of the market uh, you know, from May through October hurts you. And that's what mm. the evidence mm. says. And the last year... Uh, that selling in May would have helped you even before considering taxes was 2011. Mm, Every mm. year since then, you would have been better off being in the, in the market the entire time. It mm. simply is a myth. Mm. And it's amazing. With no logic how, behind yeah. it either. It's amazing how long these, these myths stick around, though. I mean, you know, we, we all know uh, uh, from from our sort of schoolboy history, if you like, that, that, that the, the uh, Wall Street crash in 29 happened in October. And, and, you know, every October, almost without fail, you see an article about, you know, October is a kind of dodgy month for the equity markets and so on. And uh, goodness me, that was nearly nearly 100 years ago. And we're still talking about it. Yeah, you get these coincidences. You have very few of big crashes. And if, you know, a couple of them happened the same September, uh, October period. So we had 911 mm. in the Great Dep Depression and the beginning mm. of the Great Financial Crisis happened around the same time. Those are three events out of 100 years. They could have happened at any point in time. There was no reason they actually happened in September. Larry, this has been a really interesting discussion. If anyone wants to catch up on these um, investment lessons of Larry's, they're on the Evidence-Based Investor. We're running them in two parts.
Larry, before we go, is there a lesson that you can leave us all with as we head into 2022? Yeah, I would say this. The overriding lesson is this. All crystal balls are cloudy, and the best an investor can do is to develop a well-thought-out plan that globally diversifies across lots of unique sources of risk, not putting their eggs in one basket, making sure they don't take more risks than they have the ability, willingness, or need to take. Because once you've won the game, you should pretty much stop playing uh, and don't risk your fortune. Uh, And then simply stick with your plan unless any of your underlying assumptions have changed like you got an inheritance, now your need to take risk is lower, so you should likely reduce your risk. Uh, you have a divorce or a death in the family. On the mm. other side, that could cause you to you know, have less of an ability to take risk, so you should lower your equity allocation, regardless of what's happened in the market. But other than that, the best thing investors could do is to have a well-thought-out plan and then act like the lowly postage stamp which does one thing and only one thing, but it does it exceedingly well. It sticks to the envelope until it reaches its destination. And that's what investors should do. Stick to their plan, rebalance in tax management, and adjust only when your assumptions have changed. Uh, And then focus on the big rocks in your life and you won't have to watch CNBC or read Barron's because you won't learn anything from them. I don't know about you, but I love that postage stamp analogy. You've been listening to me, Robin Powell, interviewing Larry Swedro on the Tebby podcast, which is produced and funded by Regis Media. If you're a financial advisor and would like to know more about Regis Media, just visit our website, regismedia.com. That's regismedia.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Better still, why not write a review? Thank you to Larry Swedro, and most of all, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.